Welcome, everybody, to the Pixel Classroom Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Reed. Here, we'll talk about everything from education to passion, innovation, X-Factor, pop culture, entrepreneurship, and more. And if you like what you hear, please think of subscribing to us. We would love to have you continue listening and supporting the Pixel Classroom Podcast. And now, let's get to today's episode. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Pixel Classroom podcast here. This is episode 125, which is ironic, especially with my guest today, because usually when you hit a number like 125, it was considered a big anniversary uh, issue. So uh, I like to introduce my guest here, and then he'll uh, he'll call on things. So this uh, amazing uh, legend, as I like to call it, a fan here, is a well-known artist. He was, of course, the uh, first history back in the 80s. He worked on books such as Kate. Kazar and the Savage Land, Star Wars, The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones, which is even more ironic. He was drawing books that I was fans of the movie, but he's also well, very well known for working on the original uh, Spider-Man black costume, as well as several other stories, including the kid who collects uh, Spider-Man, a classic story. He is also the person who was responsible for the original design for the Superman blue costume way back in the nineties. And he has just been a plethora of stuff, including the co-creator of spider girl, other characters. And of course the most recent work with uh, one of his partners, of course, Tom DeFalco and our pal Sal Buzuma for the right project. I would like to, Welcome the one and only Ron Friends to the Pixel Classroom. Welcome, Ron. Thank you very much, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Believe me. Well, thank you so much. I mean, it, it just is an amazing part here. Like I said, I, I, as we were saying before we started recording here, I've been a bit of fan for a long time. Members of my family have loved your work. But, um, you know, you, you've you've had over, I, I, I don't want to date you, you've had about a 40-year career here. Pretty amazing. When you've worked that's, with some, you've worked, for, you've worked for the big two, you've worked for independence, you've worked for Creative Own and other stuff. But how, you know, and many, and I actually talked to a couple of my students, I was talked to them, and some of them are actually um, aspiring to be maybe a professional artist. But um, what led you to the business and how has it been working in a business that's been going on for quite a number of decades? And you've been through many uh, very well-known characters, some who are actually now famous movie characters, which we'll probably talk about a little later, too. But uh, how did that process begin and what's kind of led you through the uh, last several years on all the books you've worked on? Well, I'll start by saying I'm the luckiest guy on the the planet. And and you'll understand why I say that. I don't remember a time when I didn't draw. My father was a paper salesman at the time. Uh, so I always had reams of eight and a half by 11 white paper to draw on. And I, again, can't, can't think, can't remember a time when I didn't. And somewhere early on, uh, literally like when I was four or five, uh, we dis- I discovered comic books, uh, the newspaper comics and the, the TV uh, animated superheroes. And those two interests just dovetailed. And uh, by the time 1967 or so rolled around and I was about seven or eight, I discovered Spider-Man through the cartoon and started picking up Spider-Man comics and never looked back. At the time you asked little seven-year-old Ron friends what he wanted to do when he grows up. It was, I want to grow up. I want to draw comic books and I want to draw Spider-Man Marvel. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I, was, I was very directed and was doing it when I was about 25. So wow. preparation and, uh, and mania. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Especially what we call it. Man. Once, <laughs> once I got there, once I got there, I, I enjoyed every single minute of working at Marvel and, uh, once I partnered with Tom DeFalco, it just became a wonderful collaboration. And, and uh, I, I knew every day that these were the good old days. You know, it was a wonderful, uh, wonderful way to live your life. I, I, again, very lucky guy. Yeah, and I have to say, you've worked on quite the characters. I mean, even coming in, like I said, you want to be Spider-Man, you know, saw the original cartoon. I saw the, I remember, you know, little three-year-old Ryan Reed watching the original 81 series, and that really made me say, I should pick up Spider-Man, and my grandfather was a huge um, 
comics fan, but he was a more of a DC fan. I actually knew who Green Lantern was before Spider-Man, which was really funny. We had, you know, yeah. back then the old Super Friends cartoons, which were still airing at that time, too. So I was more familiar with Hal Jordan. And then, of course, we saw the cartoon and he decided to say, you know, I have a couple things. And he actually had the very the very first appearance of my of my favorite Spider-Man villain, which you've drawn yourself, Mysterio, which was really good. It it, it had seen better years, though. I will have to say it looked like it had just it had been, you know, sat there. And unfortunately, it did right. get thrown out by my grandmother way back. I don't blame her. I understand back then. It was, I mean, it was all it was it was like in pieces. I mean, you it was during because my uncle read it like hundreds of times. My uncle was a big Spider-Man fan. And the Mysterio issue was just completely destroyed. But I was like so mad. I eventually got a, a piece from a recopy of it. So it was kind of nice to have it. But, and you know, you, you just, it is amazing what you've been on. You've had some really landmark um, parts with the characters of Spider-Man as well as Superman and many other characters. But, you know, something about which was interesting, like the black costume saga and also later one of the most well-known ones like him versus Fire Lord. But how did you go from, you know, Spider-Man's always had a very detailed costume and very, it was one of the first costumes without, as they say, the under ruse that steve deco uh, drew all these the black costume wasn't that it was almost a solid costume with the spider emblem kind of thing so what was it like to go from kind of that traditional kind of well i gotta add lines i gotta add webs to well i just gotta draw it and have the eyes and the and the logo and the logo and maybe the nice as i used to call them the the wrist spinners um is what i used to call it because you know that's what seven-year-old Ryan right. thought but uh what was it like to do that kind of an art change for such a major change from the character and you know i know john Romita jr had to deal with that too as during the hobgoblin sagas during roger stern's run yeah it, it was uh it was very stunning uh, because it was one of the well it was the first time i can remember that uh, any major character had gone through something like that it, it seems to happen quite often these days <laughs> but uh, but back then i was finally I, I that was brought on the, the Spider-Man title uh, to do like six issues while John Romita Jr. got X-Men up and running. And uh, so I was brought on and I was sent the sketches for the black costume. And I thought it was a new villain. I hadn't read the plot yet. So I thought it was a new villain. And basically my attitude was I've waited 25 years to draw the amazing Spider-Man. And when I, by the time I get here, he's not Spider-Man. He's something brand new. <laughs> Uh, I embraced it. Uh, it. It was very weird at the time because nobody was sure it was going to be a success. Certainly, no, we, none of us thought it was going to take off the way it did, but maybe we should have because it was a very rare thing. And these days, you know, much like death in comics, these days guys change their costumes all the time and nobody really notices anymore. But back then it was uh, it wasn't a gimmick. It was something that Jim Shooter decided he wanted to do to uh, bring some attention to the Secret Wars maxi series. And uh, it certainly did that. And uh, it was it was Beatle time at conventions. I did a convention <laughs> in Canada and the uh, uh, fire marshal tried to shut it down because the crowds were so big. Whoa. Uh, and yeah, it was crazy. It was just crazy time. Uh, people, it, it was similar, but not as big as when they did the death of Superman over at DC, mm -hmm. because people thought an issue like this was going to like go into plastic and like finance their kid's college, you know, career or something, <laughs> Right. which never happens. It never <laughs> happens because when something's that popular, they print millions of copies, you know, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, it was it was a really, really interesting time. And it was a heck of a way to be introduced to the uh, to the Spider-Man character in the run. And DeFalco and I kind of gelled and John Romita Jr. decided he wasn't going to come back. He told Danny Fingeroth to just run with us. And the first time I met him, I thanked him for my run on Spider-Man. And it, it, it was it was it was such an amazing and it was too. great fun. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, 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 the one thing I think that also caught us, because I remember being the little kid walking into the original, um, um, we had what was called the quarter market, and that's where we would get our comics from. And I remember just seeing it on the rack going, what, what would happen to the character? Sure. And then days later, uh, my mom took us to the old Lehan Perry drugs, which we know is long gone these days. And there was the action figure for Secret Wars, a black costume. I'm like, what is this about? So, you know, it was it really drew us in. And it was so thick, but it was a, such a change for the character, but yet it was still Spider-Man. And one thing of the comic 
did still reflect on that too, which was very nice little transition, even though where the stories would go later on as the alien costume storyline came about. Right. So yeah, no, uh, that was, that. that's really, it was, it was a pretty much amazing time for that too. You know, not pun intended there for Spider-Man, but um, it, it was, and you, and you got to work with a lot of things too. I mean, you and Tom worked a little thing. You definitely worked on some major storylines with, um, like I said, with, Ro- with Roger Stern and a few other ones, but what was it like, you know, trying to launch, you, you know, going back to you and Tom, like when you guys, starts Thunderstrike a few years later. What was it like to kind of take that little piece, which was almost like a Thor identity and kind of spin it off to its own series? And I mean, Eric Masterson has been a very, it has inspired a lot of stories, MC2, later on and other things. And believe it or not, I think it was also like a small inspiration for the Jane Foster Thor. I mean, people take, take that where you leave it, depending on the writers. But what was it like trying to get a concept like that and then trying to take it in its own direction, as they say, where it wasn't Thor, but it is kind of got that same Thor magic to it from the rogues galleries to kind of the powers. Well, it was uh, thrust upon us. Uh, it was not part of our original game plan. And we were approached by the sales department oh, and they asked Tom DeFalco what our plans were for Eric. And uh, they were told that Eric was destined to uh, sacrifice himself and, as Thor would come back and they weren't happy. The sales department was not happy to hear that because the Eric's run as Thor was selling very well. It was very popular. So upon bringing Thor back, they, they said, we'd like to spin Eric off into a book. And Tom asked them, what would that look like? And the sales department said, that's what you get to decide. (laughs) So again, it wasn't part of our plan from the beginning. Tom contacted me and we started working quickly to uh, develop something that would be a spinoff of Thor, that would be Thor-like, but not too Thor. We had an inkling of where the new team was going to take Thor, very cosmic. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to ground it. So we wanted to ground it on Earth uh, and go very straight superhero, which is what Tom and I enjoy the most. And uh started coming up with ideas and uh, that we, you know, we had a couple of meetings with editorial and, and the rest of the team and uh, developed Thunderstrike as, as a way of even keeping it racked close to Thor when it was racked alphabetically, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. So, yeah. That, that was one of Tom's concerns is that it would be racked somewhere near Thor. So it, you know, there was a lot of practicality, a lot of inspiration and, Eric was a character that I think was crafted correctly in that we, we knew when we introduced him that we were going to merge them at some point, mm-hmm. but we wanted them to become friends first. We wanted the readers to like Eric and care that Eric was struck unto death and would be good with Thor merging with him to save his life. And all of that worked. I mean, because we didn't, we didn't really try too hard with Eric. We wanted him to be an everyman. We wanted him to be equal parts to Falco and myself and my older brother, who was a single father and at the time. And, and uh, you know, we, we wrote to what we know, which is a, a classic rule for writers. And um, Eric was, was embraced by the readership. Uh, so we did well. I mean, you know, the, the, the book ran for two years. It was not canceled because of lack of sales. It was canceled because Ron Perlman's people were pulling some shenanigans and decided if you canceled half the line, the half that was left would sell twice as well. And mm-hmm. all kinds of skewed business thinking that had no bearing on reality. So uh, Thunderstrike was selling very, very well, along with a bunch of other titles that were canceled because they were spinoff titles. Uh, and, uh, it was a shame. It was a real shame. I'm, I'm always amazed and gratified how many people are still out there who so fondly remember Eric when it only ran for two years, you know, and then we did pick up on it when we did the MC2 books set like 15, mm-hmm. 16 years in the future. We used Kevin Mayer at one point, again, we were approached by somebody in the, the trade paperback biz, uh, end of Marvel who said, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing a a Thunderstrike revamp by DeFalco and Friends. So we decided to try to develop something that was the second generation Thunderstrike for 616 for the main Marvel Universe. 
And uh, so anywhere we went right with the MC2 version, we went left with that version. So there's actually two versions of Eric's son, Kevin, becoming his own Thunderstrike. Uh, and someday I would love to have the meet, but uh, we'll, we'll, I, I don't know if that'll ever happen, but you know, hope springs eternal. Oh, it is. And, and I, and I am one of you, of course, one of the people did, but my uh, stepfather and which was very interesting too, is he was a collector of Thor. He's a big Walt Simonson fan. And then of course you and Tom did Thunderstrike and he actually picked those books up. He was reading he, his biggest books. He stuck with for years were Conan since the seventies, you know, back for who, no matter who had it, whether it was Marvel sure. dark horse or something, but he just loved Thor. He got completely on Walt, And then he kind of like stayed with the character for never years. And he actually picked up Thunderstrike. It's how actually how I got to know the character. Cause I was, like I said, I was kind of not in comics near. 90s until mid 90s when I get back in but he resonated to himself because he was a now a new father because you know he had married my mother he had me as a stepson he had just become doing so he really resonated with the character kind of understanding that struggle about raising a kid where oh. you know it's like that's nothing and in a way I kind of understood it too and I actually understood my own father's situation because he was remarried he was now you know he had other kids and he was still in a relationship I, so the character really opened up me understanding as a kid side of it, um, dealing with somebody in that thing with Eric Masterson, which I always really liked about. It. And I think what I liked about too, is they were friends. You know, one thing, if you think of the old, you know, um, Donald Blake and Thor, Donald Blake was just Thor's thing to teach him a lesson about humanity. I think later on, as time went on, especially with Stravinsky, you saw that friendship bore. But Thor and Eric, I really like because they were friends first. And yes, like you said, there was the lines in the cancel. But I think that was what always made it a relatable character. And then same thing with both versions of Kevin Masterson. You had the one that grew up and inherited it. But then, like you said, you went left where you went right with in the main war. So you understood this character is like, you know, my dad died for this and blah, blah, blah. I never got to really use them. And superheroes drew that out. And then he was brought into that world, too, which I think was very identifiable of themselves, which was very relatable to the character that you and Tom did. So, well, I even feel that one of the mistakes that some writers make is is not making Thor relatable. Uh, Tom and I have always felt that Thor is basically, well, a lot of the early Marvel concepts are family oriented because mm -hmm. what do, what do readers of all ages understand? Family. They, we all have families, whether it's young kids, family, you know, so Thor's relationship with Odin, what made that a family drama. And when we decided not to go back to Don Blake, because he had been revealed to have been a, an artificial personality, uh, made by Odin, uh, we wanted Thor to have a relationship with a, with a human being to illustrate Thor's respect and, and love of humanity, that we came up with the idea of Eric being a single father so that his relationship, Eric's relationship with Kevin could compare and contrast and parallel Thor's relationship with Odin. And, and once they merged, it would put Thor in that interesting position of seeing it from both sides and we had great fun with that. Uh, we don't really see Odin as a villain, as so many writers do. Uh, we see Odin as a father and mm -hmm. as a, a monarch who is trying to run a, a world and also, you know, try to keep his son from, from wandering off. He wanted his son to take over the family business, but by his own actions of teaching him humility, he messed up his own plans and he and he made Thor aware of the wider responsibility in the wider universe and and ended up kind of doing a dolt and yeah. wishing he <laughs> wishing he could take that back, you know. But I always enjoyed writing the relationship between Thor and Odin. I loved writing the relationship between uh Eric and Kevin. And uh a lot of our issues uh where he was Eric was bonded with Thor and realized that he was going to have to go off on a cosmic adventure as Thor and that he wasn't because of that responsibility, he wasn't being the best parent for Kevin. So he actually through his uh, custody hearing, he, he went in and told them, I've decided I'm not going to fight anymore. You know, Kevin does need stability. He needs to be with his mother. You've won you know, mm -hmm. and, and walks out and it was painful for him. It was painful for us. It was painful for Kevin to, to try to get his brain around it. But, uh, you know, that, that theme of responsibility is something very familiar to anybody that reads comics, especially Spider-Man and, uh, you know, but, but, uh, making sacrifices for the greater good is what heroism is all about.
Yeah, and then, and then, like I said, that was always a thing, too, especially, like, you know, later on when you did MC2 and we talked more about Cassie and Scott's relationship, which, you know, in the 616 was what it was because of his relationship with Peggy and everything else, too, and and that, too. But I always I kind of like the the fact is, like, you had it where it's like they understood there was more better responsibility and what they had to do. And then later on when you, you and Tom and, you know, Patrick and Ron Lim went and created the, you know, MC2 universe, we saw a lot of that family dynamic. I mean, like I said, especially with with spider girl the very first one you know and i'm you know i'm, I'm i hate to say it i i feel like uh outside kelly and zach i'm probably one of the number one spider girl fans around there which is crazy and some people look at me like why do you like that character so much like because she feels like the you could she could be you <laughs> it's like that's what was always done thing and when the you guys created the character in 1998 i i was early years of college but i felt may's understanding of struggle but i also understood about the parents that don't want you to sometimes, as you said, with Odin and Thor, he wants you to take over the family business, but unfortunately kind of messed all up that plan because he learns the humidity yeah. of the earth. And, but like with spider girl, as, as you you and Tom wrote with the characters, like Peter was, if I fail, people die, learn that with uncle Ben. And she learned when she succeeds, people live. So there was this big reversal, but then how that kind of impacted Peter. But I also sure. like the fact that Mary Jane, how she took that stood because she had been there with those nights where she didn't know if Peter was coming home alive. And same thing as a mother for a teenage daughter, she's got enough drama in high school and now she's out there putting her life online. You know, how did that family dynamic take? Cause like you said, you, 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 and I know Tom has said this in several interviews, how you guys took those early years of the Marvel universe to weave the MC too. But what was always like those basis for both the character designs, as well as going forward with them when you create characters like, you know, you know, Spider Girl, May Parker, who was an original creation, versus you have established characters like you know Cassie Lang. You have established characters like the Pym twins, which you know their parents were well established, but we didn't know anything about you know Henry Jr. and Hope Van, da- you know Hope Pym, and what led them on different paths in life. You know what what was the inspiration on that? Well, it, it becomes just a situation of taking what you know about the established characters and extrapolating. I mean, the big thing with May Day is that it was very important to me that May Day be uh, half Peter and half Mary Jane. Mary Jane's a very popular character. So what I loved about our pilot episode was that what we made clear was that she was popular with both the, the geeks and the jocks, and she was divided as Mayday Parker. As May Parker, she was divided because when she was with her geek friends, her nerd friends, she had to deny her jockness. And when she was with her jock friends, she had to deny her nerdy. Mm-hmm. When she finds out about her legacy, uh, uh, the legacy of Spider-Man, when she finds out that Spider-Man was her dad and she first puts on the costume, she finally brings those two halves together and it's liberating for her. It's the first time she can merge and equally use her brains and her physicality in a way that she has never been able to do before, unapologetically be complete. And so, you know, she had completely different set of issues than her father did. Her father was unpopular. Mary Dane was amazingly popular. She was, you know, dealing with having a hot mom. She was dealing with uh, having much more confidence than Pete ever did. And a lot of that had to do with what Pete had already gone through, but also Mary Jane being an equal part of raising her. And we had a lot of fun with that. I mean, that's, that was where we started with, with her in a situation with, with Pims, uh, we wanted, we wanted a situation where not every second generation went the right way mc2 was based on the concept uh maybe if you you could say kind of like the original star trek where things actually went right Mm -hmm. you know so many times when you do the future of superheroes at some point everything went bad and even though there were superheroes in their world somehow it still went bad right it went catastrophic and everybody's dark and dingy and nobody believes in heroes anymore and all this our our vision of mc2 15 years in the future was that the superheroes actually made the world a better place they actually left a legacy of positivity 
So the next generation of kids who find themselves either with powers or with abilities or talents or whatever, it was natural for them to use them in that way, whether it's because they wanted to be famous or whether it's because they were inspired by a generation of people who steadfastly believed that with great power must also come great responsibility. They inspired that next generation of kids. And you hope that that's what would happen. You know, I mean, right. <laughs> I don't. So, so we just, we were leaving out the, everything came off the, you know, everything went off the rails and, and everything was dark and, 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 uh, and noir now. And, and, gave us a hopeful future where the Marvel superheroes, the entire contingent of Marvel superheroes actually made the world a better place to live in. So the next generation of these characters were inspired by them to continue that fight, that crusade. And uh, so when we got to the Pims, we decided, you know, there are people who, if, if in our continuity, Janet and Hank were both sacrificed on an Avengers mission, there would be resentment. You know, the, 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 at least one of their kids would uh, turn to the dark side. Um, and the other one would be incredibly, you know, that kind of thing. So we were having fun playing with the models. The second generation was there to do the right thing because they were inspired by the first generation. Yeah, you, you try to take elements of the lead character, like like with real parents, you try to take elements of each parent and mm. combine them and see where that DNA might lead you. You know, I mean, it's definitely what we did with May Day. That's what we did in most cases. Somebody's parentage was, we had some idea, you know, in what the relationship was. If, if, if he had the choice, every, you know. Right. Uh, we, were, we, were, we weren't looking to be very radical or, uh, or overly modern. So uh, his belief was that in, in, in almost every case, these, were, these children were products of a marriage, whether it was a good marriage, a solid marriage, but they were products of a marriage. Yeah, and I, I even saw that with your supporting cast members, like between Felicia and Flash's children with Felicity and Eugene. Right. Also seeing like with Brenda Drago, how she did go in with Blackie Drago, but then kind of realized, you know, maybe being the villain really isn't the way I need to go. And my dad was only in and out of my life and so forth. Exactly. Or like Normie Osborne, which I think had the best story arc in the Spider-Girl universe, going from that legacy of the Green Goblin to do a thing, also technically being part of the legacy of Venom, but also how you guys kind of move that too. But also taking another character that Tom had created with Steve uh, Scrose with the black tarantula, but also saying how, despite things, the legacy of that character still influenced the son who was, you know, still a kid in sure. one six, but I liked how that works. Same thing with Arena and her saying, Oh yeah, I'm supposed to be the generation five, but I'm gonna be the good guy. You know what? Maybe I have fallen back into the cult. And this is kind of where life took me years later too. And I think that was always what was so rich about the MC too. And what I always liked about the characters, sometimes you didn't know where they were going. It wouldn't be like like, something like, like the faces, like with funny face, crazy eight and angel face, angel face was bad since day one. That's where her kids went. No more head versus Brenda Raptor went that other way or normie who was having that classic legacy of the green goblin but then found a way to actually end that legacy but then people like fury and other ones who continued the tradition of of norman osborne and everything else too so i mean that was one thing i also always loved about the mc too i felt like there was growth but at the same time like you said i like the that the world was a better place from the heroes and life kind of went on and even more ironic. I know Tom and you and Pat said this was they were saying, well, if you look at say we all, we've thought the year, the future would look like 15, 20 years later, it almost is different. It's almost the same, but maybe some different fashion or trends. And that was so funny when you guys were making jokes, like oh, May Day's like, well, sure. I want to get this for my Pokemon collection. Pokemon was still popular by the time that <laughs> timeline came up and people were still dressing and they were having ripped jeans. They were having old styles come back. I mean, I'm a high well, school. We were, yeah, we, we, we were all fans of science fiction and we're getting a little tired of everybody's got flying cars and nobody has flying cars yet. <laughs> so we weren't, we weren't about to do that kind of a leap. Uh, you know, computers would be smaller, uh, more convenient, things like that. You know, phones should have been smaller and smaller and smaller, but they started getting big again, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so it's so hard. To, yeah. It's so hard to, to predict any of that kind of thing. So we weren't worried about it. that. That's, that's what got so bizarre is a, a lot of readers decided that somehow the MC2 universe was current day. And we were saying that the Marvel universe started sooner, you know, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. And when really our only, 
concept was, you know that movie, that Spider-Man movie in 2002, you know when the kids do the upside-down kiss? Well, you know, those two wacky kids got married and they had a kid and the world grew up around them and it was roughly 15, 16 years later. And, you know, we, we never, it was anytime you saw a date on a newspaper or something, that was not Tom DeFalco or me or Pat Olive or anybody. That was the editor trying to help. <laughs> and our attitude was always, it's, it's just the future. These kids are grown now. That's all. You know, plus the fact it's the Marvel Universe. The Marvel Universe would be so far ahead of the real world outside your window anyway because of Reed Richards and Tony Stark mm-hmm. and all that kind of jazz. So, you know, we weren't really worried about showing a futuristic world. We wanted people to be able to identify with what was going on. And, you know, now that we're past where those stories would have been taking place anyway, and look, <laughs> people still microwaves people still have cell phones people still drive combustion cars you know right. I mean, come on guys we don't have moving sidewalks we don't all wear silver jumpsuits and we still don't have our blasted flying cars you know so uh i mean you you look back at these movies i mean soylent green was set oh, in yeah. 2022 uh you know so uh, even the even the dystopian thankfully even the dystopian ones haven't happened you know that kind of thing we got past 1984 you know that kind of thing not not that there aren't a lot of parallels you know (laughs) not that we aren't sometimes feel like we're teetering on the brink but we're not there yet you know that kind of thing so we weren't interested in rusting these characters into a future world we were interested in the concept of legacy the idea of generations and and building upon legacy. And that was really what the, the entire uh, run was about. And, and Tom, even in his, his work in the 616, was very big on having Sandman reform mm-hmm. and, you know, bad guys thinking, why do I want to get beat up for the umpteenth time? You know, we, we did that in Thor and Thunderstrike with Crusher Creel. Oh, yeah. He was really getting sick and tired of getting his head handed to him every six months by the Hulk or whoever, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so, so Tom was always fascinated by that, that aspect of it. And uh, so that was very much a part of what was going on in the MC too. People switch sides, people make decisions, people make bad decisions. And then sometimes they make good decisions. Normie Osborne uh, being the grandson I mean, that poor kid was emotionally abused from day one right. and was a mess, was a mess. But he got better. He, he went to therapy. He, you know, through his friendship with Mayday, he came to a lot of his own decisions and he was able to break a bad cycle. And aren't we all, to one degree or another, we're all trying to do that too. We're all trying to evolve and learn and break our bad cycles, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so, yeah, I think there was a lot of positive in those characters. And I've always been gratified by the, the incredible uh, depth of our fan base for that book. I mean, people who have read that book since the time they were kids have gotten into the medical field, are doing, you know, working in social programs. They're doing good. I, I don't don't know whether they were directly inspired by any of that i, I can't uh, you know i'm not arrogant enough to think that but they're good people i've yet to meet a spider girl fan who isn't a a, a terrific example of humanity uh, it's it's wonderful it, it's wonderful um smart people you know good people and uh you know if we had anything to do with that great but i mean i i I'm glad that we attracted that kind of an audience too, you know? Yeah. And, and like I said, with, with what you've done too, I mean, as a, as a person who was a teacher myself too, I've used spider girl as an example, but I've used regular Marvel and DC and independent books to reflect the times and everything. And I had a friend of mine and he was an English and history teacher. And he would like to talk about that too. Like he would say like, why is this book talking about this, you know, Spider-Man 1970, but then we're talking here. Do you see the same things? But at the same time is it is sometimes a reflection of the times, but also saying too, maybe there are better times ahead for things too. I mean, I know um, JR on the Spider-Man, 
crawl space was talking about some of the stuff back during like the, you know, and we, we talk about things from cults to, to protests, but how those kind of changed and errors, but you know, things that changed, but you know, it was a sign of time. Like you said, the editor put the, the newspaper date on that too. I mean, let's face it. If I look at a classic uh, Spider-Man copy, there's a character that looks like Pat Morita. Cause what's, what was going on back then? The karate kid and everything else, but he looks like that character because of the times and everything. Yeah. But a lot of people didn't think, well, I mean, it's, fired it's impossible. It. It's impossible for entertainment, not to reflect the time it's made in. Uh, you know, I, I get a little exhausted with people on Facebook constantly talking about Reed and Sue's relationship oh, in the sixties. Yeah. And it's like, it was the sixties. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the only example I can think of offhand of something produced in the 60s that didn't really reflect the everyday more morals of the 60s was the Dick Van Dyke show. Oh, yeah. Those guys were amazingly uh, forward thinking. You know, they were very uh, aggressive in, in their thinking. And those shows are amazing how well they hold up. And even then, you know, they, they would have Rob struggling with traditional gender roles and all this kind of stuff that were just beautifully, beautifully written pieces of comedy. Uh, but yeah, I, I think anything produced at a given time is going to reflect that time. And, you know, give it a break, you know, take right. that into exactly. account. We get, we, get, we get comments on Facebook about the shoulder pads in, <laughs> in Thor and Thunderstrike on the women's clothing. Uh, Eric had a mullet for a while. Okay. I had a mullet for a while. I had, All a, right? I had a perm at one point. Okay. I don't have much hair now, but I had a perm at one point. No, nobody, nobody is, you know, saying that's the way it should be again, but we all lived through it. Okay. And we survived. So there you yeah, go. That's a good thing. You know, you know, moving on from traditional. So I want to talk about, you know, your more recent thing you had taking care of you and Tom and Sal with, of course, the right project, which is, of course, an independent. Like, of course, I got my little pieces here. I was showing you. Nobody can see this is all audio and we're having a couple of connections that I'm editing out too. But, um, you know, what's really thing is something like the right project and actually doing an independent comic, which you said, which was, as they say, uh, which was a, you know, a campaign fundraiser, but is also with technically an independent, as they say, indie comic. Like, what what is the process of doing that? How does that differ from working with a more mainstream industry, like say Marvel or Image or even Dark Horse at some point? Like what goes into that? And as well as working through creating the characters and as they say too, making them last. Well, making them determined, thanks. Uh, the bottom line on a sandbox, uh, you know, when you create a new character like Thunderstrike at Marvel, you you're you know you're working in their sandbox you know what the parameters of that sandbox are uh when you're creating something completely new you get to decide what the sandbox looks like and that's how tom and i started with this whole thing you know uh, we we said what's our favorite kind of character you know uh and and uh, you know we, we went with a, an athletic tumbler uh square jawed action character like you know, the 60s version of Daredevil mm -hmm. or or some of the Simon Kirby characters in the 50s, you know, uh, that would just be incredibly physical and, uh, and, and but not super, super powerful. Uh, so, you know, a lot of a lot of tumbling and 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 uh, full contact, but no super strength necessarily and all this kind of stuff. That was our, so we start with that and we start with. Uh, you know, do we want this to be an all ages thing? Do we want it to be an adult thing? Naturally, we went with all ages uh, and uh, we started to, to, to build and craft. Now, if you want to do a square jawed hero, are we going to do a guy who just was raised by his grandparents and has a different attitude, a throwback attitude? Or do we want to, you know, we came up with an idea that we thought was kind of interesting that he was digital. Mm -hmm. and we we uh you know played with the idea that he was idealized by a kid who's like 12 you know, 11 or 12 you know and 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 that suggested other characters and other uh, balances and 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 threats and making it so that all the characters were in a certain amount of jeopardy uh, you know it, it but, but we get to decide and uh, tom was developing other characters at the time 
and uh, was working on uh, trying to get some other books up and running uh, with other people and, and did decide at one point to use the same. We had come up with the name New Hope for this mid-sized American city. And he decided, you know what, if I think I'll use New Hope for the other characters as well, keep them all centralized. You know, uh, so we, we were actually going back to an idea more DC than Marvel. Instead of just right. using New York, we'd create, you know, our own environment. And, uh, and New Hope ended up being a city named after the Hope family that, uh, you know, that, that were very powerful business people and a, and a, 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 a legacy of civic works and all this. And, and there was a current person running uh, Hope Worldwide, which was the company that was owned by the family, just on and on and on. So, you know, you, you start spitballing and you come up with different concepts and ideas and, and uh, it was great fun. It, it was something that we had kind of worked on and, and basically it had up on a shelf when we were contacted by a gentleman uh, named uh, uh, <laughs> Mariano Nicieza. Uh, hi, Mariano. And he um, he was putting together uh, some titles for his Apex Comics group through crowdfunding. And he asked us if we had anything that we might be interested in doing. And we were, you know, we, we were always curious to see uh, when when you create something, you want to get it in front of an audience. Well, you, right. you want to get audience feedback. I mean, at some point, Apex Comics, I'm told, is going to you know be be closing a deal with this uh, with a comics distributor, so it will be available in comic shops. At this point, it's only available through through Indiegogo, right? Uh, but at some point, it will be available through Diamond Distribution and available in comic shops. So that's something we can look forward to, and we can see if it sells, and we can see if anybody's interested in us producing more, because you create a series that has legs. You know, I mean, we know where the stories go if we are given the opportunity to produce them, which, you know, is even true through Marvel. Now the comics industry is very different now than it was back in the eighties. Oh the yeah. 80s, we still had newsstands. We still had newsstand sales. We still had spinner racks and drugstores. I, every morning, I thank God that I was around for that, that I got to enjoy regular newsstand sales, even though one of my first assignments was one of the uh, direct sales books, Kesar the Savage, that was only available in comic shops. Hmm. But, uh, but you know, even by the time I was on uh, Spider-Man and even Thor, early on in Thor, we, we still had a newsstand presence. It was before it all went away. And it was a much different time. Yeah. You know, the numbers were... The, uh, the numbers were, you know, unbelievable to people who work in the current comics industry. You know? well, yeah, and, uh, and students and, of mine who do read comics based on seeing the movies and everything, I tell them the stories of when I could go to a place like the grocery store and there was the newsstand, or I could go to that old shop, or I could actually hit the old, the old daily one on and they were all there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I, my brother and I went out every week. We went to a sun drug, a newsstand, and a national record mart, I believe, to uh, to buy our monthly comics. You know, I remember national rap mart because there was still one in Arizona when my, my when I was visiting my aunt and uncle back there, and I do remember that place. And there was yeah. a comic. I think yeah. I picked up a Green Lantern or an old Superman back then too. I couldn't remember which issues they were. But yeah, I definitely can remember that. Wow. But that's so, yeah. you know we that's when we worried about what was on the covers because we were still trying to we were sitting on a rack going, hey, hey, you. I know you might not read comics, but this looks interesting, doesn't it? You yeah. Know, now everything's in the comic shop. Everybody pre-orders everything. Uh, the, the covers aren't don't serve the same function. So it's it's uh, quite often it, it's like trying to compare apples and oranges in comparing the industry now to what the industry was even when I got in in '82. You know, '82, '83. So uh, it, it's it's been a long, strange trip for this industry, and nobody. It seems to know where it's going to go from here. You know, well, I mean, everybody thought everybody thought we'd be going digital, but nobody's found a good way to monetize it yet. Yes. So it's that's not going to happen until it can be monetized, until it can be turned into a a profitable business. So it's uh, it's still an ongoing question, and it's way above my pay grade as to uh, 
where the comics industry goes from there. And I'm very happy it's above my pay grade because <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> well, yeah, and I have to say, I mean, I do get some digital copies of books, but I am still, you know, doing the classic, you know, paper in my hand. But same thing with books. I tend to order a normal book. I mean, I'm a teacher. I, I have right here an actual normal teacher book. I do not have the digital copy of that because you know what? Even But it, it has QR code. So it's like, hey, you want a digital copy to work this in, you know, whatever platform you are, PowerPoint, Google, whatever. Sure. Hey, scan it. You go from sure. there. But we're at least going to explain it. And then if you want the copy of it, get out your phone or, you know, put it up to your computer like we're talking to and go for it. But right. at the same time, it's not really monetized. It's like, what is it more still doing? It's still a hard print book here. So, you know, it, it, it's a very interesting thing, but I do have to say, I, I am very happy people like you and Tom and Sal and JM and even current, more current writers too, have been able to keep that going on with the characters and stuff to make, you know, fans like us too. Cause like I said, if you were to talk to the 10 year old me who wanted what we have in the movie industries, whether they're successful or not, or streaming series is like the current She-Hulk series or Ms. Marvel and everything else. People would have told me at the age of 10, like that's never going to happen. They'll never be able to pull that off. And now it's like these kids, I talk and I teach, I mean, my own son, who's about to turn 12, can't imagine those days where people would tell you that they're like, what do you mean? I can, I can put it on Disney plus, or I can, I can go on YouTube. It's like, yeah, but you know, when I was your age, it didn't work. <laughs> No, uh, Ryan, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I never believed it either. Um, when, when they were making the first X-Men movies and the first pictures of uh, Hugh Jackman came out and he actually looked like Wolverine, people looked at me like I had a, a, a grown another head because I was going, he looks like Wolverine. Like, what did you think he was going to look like? I didn't know because we grew up in the 70s right. where nobody cared about that kind of thing. And, you know, and, and I never thought, I honestly, at one point in my life, never thought that they would be able to market Thor because there are still places on this planet where they worship Thor. Yeah, exactly. I never thought that we would be, that we would have toy Mjolnirs. And I mean, we used one, we had Kevin have one in the Marvel Universe because they had established that in the Marvel Universe they had. Mm -hmm. I yeah. never thought it would be real. I have like four or five of them here at the studio. It, oh, well. Yeah, I, we, we, we've, we've lived through interesting times and we still are listening to Very much so. Very, very, very much so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. I, I got to tell you, Ron, you know, despite all of this, this, is, this has been an amazing time. And I know you guys schedule. And like I said, we've been having back and forth tech issues, which, of course, people in the final print will probably never know what we were going through. But, you know, I, I really want to thank you for being on this for the last, you know, for the last hour and sharing, you know, your work, answering these questions, which I know a lot of fans and a lot of people don't know about the industry. I know, like I said, I have several students that I told them about you. And they're like, when's that episode drop? Like next week. Like, I really want to know it because maybe I want to be a professional artist but then they say but i like to do a lot of digital i'm like so the the, the change stuff and maybe that's not that's that's where it's headed you know <laughs> I, i'm still doing things traditionally but many 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 illustrators have switched over and mm -hmm. right exactly there is no physical art anymore you know it's you know it, it's uh so that is that is not a hindrance that's that's the way it's done these days so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Not that I might. But you have to love it. You, anything, anything you're going to turn into a career, you better love it. At two in the morning, when you're working a deadline, you better love it. So that that's really the only caveat I have for that kind of thing. You know that you have to have a. It, it's like having a love that can survive a marriage. You better have that love that can survive a marriage. And I, I think that's a perfect love drop too. It's like, I've been, I've been in teaching for over, you know, almost 15 years too. And I got to say, I've gone through crazy times, especially in times here, like I said, which goes on in education and self too. But, you know, like I said, I mean, I'm at a new school for the first time in five years, but I can tell you right now, my principal, my students say he loves doing this job. Even when sometimes we're driving, you go. he, he yeah. still loves to I do love you. So that's the thing. Well, Ron, thank you so much. Um, what is there any way, you know, I, I know you're on your own stuff, but what, what's some cool stuff coming out for sure you? Blue Baron for an outfit called Sitcomics Binge Books, which are now available through Diamond Distribution and should be available in coffee shops everywhere. Uh, but you can also check it out at sitcomics.net for more information. Um, and I'm still I'm doing uh, private commissions through catskillcomics.com. 
and I have a backlog there. I got to start working faster. And uh, I still occasionally dabble in variant covers and a five-page story here and a five-page story there for Marvel, where, usually with Tom DeFalco when we're given an opportunity. Uh, so I'm still dabbling with the uh, the mainstream as well. But uh, I'm very content. I, uh, I, I, I had my shot, and I took it, and I climbed my particular mountain and i enjoyed the view for years and years and years and years and years so uh you know uh, i'm a big proponent of do that dream give it your all take a shot yeah and i got and as, as a longtime fan in person i know we've connected and talked on so but i want to say ron thank you very so much for everything you and everybody else in the industry has done all these several years making us enjoy it, and including the people who were like you read comics why do you read comics it's like but you made us love those characters and books and weren't afraid that we do it maybe financially we couldn't afford them all the time but we still always hey. come back to them Ryan, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing if you hadn't been doing what you were doing. So thank you for your support all these years. It's been uh, very gratifying, and it was my pleasure to hand if I could. So. Thank you so much for that. And like I said, and everything else, everybody else, if you want to, check out what we've done, too, and everything else, too. And uh, hopefully a thing. And definitely check out uh, Ron's work. And trust me, I see some of those work on the Catskill comics. And sometimes, like, one of those days, I'm going to be buying one of those colored versions of it. I know you've had, like, several on there where it's like, I want that. It looks so pretty. <laughs> Thank you. I look forward to it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ron, for being on the Pixel Classroom podcast with everything else in your schedule and everything else. It's been an amazing time. Thank you, Ryan. Have a great evening, sir. You too. Thank you. And we'll see everybody else later on the Pixel Classroom podcast. Thank you for joining us in today's episode of the Pixel Classroom Podcast. Remember, you can find us on our, our social media pieces here, right here in the show notes and the episode descriptions. If you like what you hear, please think of subscribing to us on the various networks of your favorite listening for podcasts. I hope to join you again next time for the Pixel Classroom Podcast.